a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad that you've joined us, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Judges chapter 3, the Old Testament book of Judges. The passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, as always, I want to invite you to be listening for the following three things during the sermon this morning. First, be listening for a definition of the Hebrew word shalom. What does shalom mean? Second, listen for a story about parenting. And third, listen for who the judges are meant to point us toward. Who are the judges meant to point us toward? Well, we're picking back up in our winter sermon series looking at the Old Testament book of Judges this morning. And Judges is a book that was written approximately 1,300 years before Jesus walked the earth. It recounts the history of Israel, which were God's Old Testament people, after they entered the promised land of Canaan. It recounts the history after they entered that promised land, but before they were given kings to rule and to reign over them. And as Israel enters the promised land, they encounter other nations who worship different gods. And one of the constant temptations for Israel is being pulled away from their God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, to worship the gods of the surrounding culture. And this morning, we get into the portion of this book that recounts individual judges in the history of Israel. And our first judge, which we're going to consider this morning, is a man named Othniel. And he gives us an example of the cycle that we're going to see over and over and over again in the book of Judges. What we see in the book of Judges over and over again is that God's people forget the Lord... They turn after and worship the idols of the Canaanites. God disciplines his people by handing them over to oppression. Eventually, God's people cry out in misery, and then God sends a rescuer or a little M Messiah, you might say, to rescue his people from their misery and their sin. A few years ago, Rachel and I went to Knoxville, Tennessee for my brother's wedding And it was an amazing weekend that we had the opportunity to spend with friends and family. And on our way back, we were flying out of Nashville back to San Antonio. And I was sitting in the terminal waiting for our plane to board when over the loudspeaker, I heard an agent say, would Taylor Smith please report to gate C-16? Would Taylor Smith please report to gate C-16? You boarded the wrong flight. You are not in Chicago. You are currently in Nashville. Apparently, Sweet Taylor, I don't know how this happens, had gotten on the wrong flight and ended up in Nashville instead of Chicago. She was probably pretty confused, pretty embarrassed, I would imagine. She wound up somewhere she had never intended to go by getting on the wrong plane. Well, in the passage that we're about to read this morning, we see that God's people once again end up at the wrong destination, somewhere they didn't want to be. By attaching their hearts to other gods, they wind up somewhere they never intended to go. And as we move through the book of Judges, we'll continually see this happen. When God's people attempt to find significance and meaning and fulfillment in anything other than God, they always find themselves in the wrong place 
lost, searching for a way to get back on track. To see what I mean, let's look at the life of the first judge, a man named Othniel. Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. You follow along as I read. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. If you were to head over to the nearest bookstore or surf over to Amazon.com, you would find a section specifically for self-help. And it's a huge section that commands lots of attention from publishers. In fact, last year, in 2021, Americans spent just over $11 billion on self-improvement books, CDs, seminars, coaching, stress management programs. And the industry is expected to continue to grow exponentially over the coming years. In some of these books and these programs, they're very helpful. There's lots of God's common grace to be found in the pages of some of the best-selling self-improvement books out there. But it's telling that this industry is so big, $11 billion. It says something about who we are as a culture and a society. It provides a certain commentary. We're a group of people, and we live in a culture by and large that wants to experience what we might say is completeness. Peace, security, prosperity, contentment, all of these great words that we're attracted to. And the Bible has a word for all of these terms. All of these terms could be wrapped up in one Hebrew word, and that word is shalom. It's likely the most well-known Hebrew word in our English-speaking world. You've heard it before. Shalom literally means universal flourishing and peace, wholeness, completeness. It's what we were created to experience, both physically and spiritually, both in our relationships with each other and in our relationship with God. Shalom is meant to characterize our horizontal and our vertical relationships in life. And what I mean by that is we long for relationships with other people, those that we rub shoulders with on a daily basis, those that live inside of our own houses. We long for relationships with those people that are characterized by wholeness and rest and contentment. We want shalom in our horizontal dealings with people. We don't like relational tension with friends and family. We all desire to be known. We feel best when we're connecting well with others, don't we? But we also long for our relationship with God to be characterized by vibrancy and contentment and rest. We want shalom in our vertical dealings with the Lord. You want to feel like God is caring for you. 
We desire to have an anchor that we can attach our souls to so that we're rooted in something greater than our circumstances. What would it look like for you and me to experience contentment in our relationship with other people? What would it look like for us to experience vibrancy in our relationship with God? What would it look like for you to be comfortable in your own skin, both spiritually and physically? Well, this morning, we're going to use Othniel, the first judge of Israel, to explore the idea of shalom. What does it look like? What are the obstacles that we place in the way of realizing that shalom, that peace, that contentment? And we'll look at this idea of shalom by asking our passage this morning three questions. Why does shalom always seem to elude our grasp? Second, we'll ask, how do we get on the path back towards shalom? And third, what role does God have in bringing shalom to our horizontal and our vertical relationships? So let's ask first, why does shalom always seem to elude our grasp? Remember where we are in the redemptive narrative of Scripture here. God had just led his people out of Egypt through a desert, and now he's giving them their very own land to inhabit. And this land, it's characterized very positively throughout the Old Testament. It's a good land, a productive land, a restful land. It's described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Finally, God's people, after hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, after 40 years of traveling through a desert, they're due for some rest, some peace, some satisfaction, some prosperity. They're due for shalom. In fact, they probably would have been thinking the very same thing. But they go about achieving this shalom in the wrong way. They see the prosperity and the beauty all around them, and they slowly begin to assimilate to the culture that they experience. They get to know the gods of the Canaanites, and they're slowly pulled away from the God that they'd always known, the God who had led them over the past few hundred years. They become enmeshed with the surrounding culture, adopting its values and its way of life. They're no longer a distinctive people. We might say that Israel is in the world and it's of the world. It's not in the world, not of the world. It's in the world and of the world. Now, before we throw God's people under the bus, we've got to remember that the pressure and the attraction of their new culture, it was enormous. We read in verse 7 that they forgot God and they began to serve the gods of the people surrounding them. And this term forgetting, it's interesting. We mentioned it a few weeks ago, but it doesn't mean that Israel literally just all of a sudden forgets all that God had done for them. They don't forget who God is and what he'd accomplished. It's a term that means ceasing to care for. The Israelites ceased to care for God. It shows us that God's people functionally stop caring much for God. He's not the center of their lives anymore. He's faded into the background, you might say. And it's important to remember why God's people forget him. It's because the gods of the culture around them seem to be delivering the goods, offering them exactly what they wanted. I mean, God's people rightfully desired shalom but they began to look for it in all the wrong places. 
They expected the idols of the surrounding culture to bring them peace and prosperity and contentment. That's what they wanted. But what they expected and what they actually experienced are two entirely different things. Some of you know exactly what this looks like because you've experienced it recently with your New Year resolutions. Did you make resolutions this year? If you did, maybe you had lots of high expectations for what 2022 was going to look like. Expectations for what your health was going to look like. What your schedule was going to look like. What your relationships were going to look like. Often we enter a new year with lots of excitement. With some pretty big expectations on how we're going to do life different. But we're almost a month into the new year now and you didn't expect to fall off the workout wagon so fast, did you? I didn't. You didn't envision that demands would pull you away from your new and improved schedule. You didn't anticipate getting sick and being taken off track with some of your work goals, maybe. You didn't calculate how other people, you know, they're always a part of the equation, how they might pull you away from your good intentions. For many of us, what we expected and what we're currently experiencing four weeks into a new year are two completely different things, aren't they? We thought 2022 would bring opportunity for a new and improved self, that you would turn over a new leaf. But you're slowly finding out that you're the same person with the same struggles and challenges and disappointments as you were last year. The high expectations you had when you started the new year, they haven't panned out. Oftentimes, our expectations far outpace our experiences, don't they? And in many ways, this is what we see in the life of God's people in Judges chapter 3. They enter the promised land with lots of high expectations. But due to their misplaced worship, what they eventually begin to experience is nothing like what they expected. The Israelites attached themselves to the idols of their new neighbors because they promised fulfillment and rest and prosperity. But what we eventually see is they actually deliver spiritual, emotional, and relational slavery. They expected one thing, but they experienced another when it came to giving their hearts affections to the idols of the culture. We see that Israel experienced oppression and slavery as a result of their misguided pursuit of shalom. Because they sought out other sources of shalom, God's anger was kindled, it says in Judges 3. And he sends an oppressor to ultimately bring his people back. Cushan Rishatham. That's the oppressor that God sends to bring his people back. And not much is known about him. His name literally means Cushan of double wickedness. It was likely a name that was tagged on him by the Hebrews themselves, by the Israelites. And he was a cruel oppressor. And he stands as a reminder that if we look for shalom in the wrong places, if we locate shalom in the idols of our culture, it'll always leave us experiencing some kind of oppression. When we worship idols... What we're doing is we're making a good thing into an ultimate thing. When when we make a good thing into an ultimate thing, we place a weight on those things that they were never intended to bear. Think about it, career success. 
everybody would agree that that is a good thing, a gift from God that allows you to make ends meet and to serve your fellow man. But when you make career success into an ultimate thing, you will find yourself willing to sacrifice integrity and family and health to get ahead. Career success was never meant to bear the weight of your soul. Make it your God and you'll find yourself enslaved in some ways to getting ahead. Your kids, they're a great thing, a good thing, a source of joy and happiness in your life. But make them the ultimate thing. If you locate your significance in them, you will find yourself enslaved by their behavior and their development and how they reflect on you as a parent and you will rise and fall based on how your kids behave. Money and comfort, those are really good things. Providing enjoyment in life. But make them the ultimate thing and you will never have enough. You'll die a thousand deaths as you compare yourself to those who have more of both. If we're not careful we will begin to find that instead of us having our idols, that our idols actually have us. These good things, they're never meant to bear the weight of your soul. And we look to these good things to bring ultimate happiness oftentimes, and they simply can't deliver what we're asking them for. We're asking something from these good created things they were never meant to give us. They'll always disappoint, even becoming cruel oppressors in your life. More often than not, we miss out on shalom because we were looking for it in all the wrong places. So, how do we get on the path toward shalom? That's our second question. Is it possible to experience the shalom that we were created for in our horizontal and vertical relationships? Well, we see in our passage that God's people had finally had enough of the idols that led them into oppression. In verse 9, we see that God's people cried out to the Lord in the midst of their distress. In the phrase cried out in verse 9, it's interesting. It does not necessarily convey the idea of repentance. In other words, it's not necessarily a cry of sorrow over their sin. This is a cry of misery. A cry of misery. God is responding in this passage to his people's pain, not necessarily their repentance. The oppression that resulted from their idolatry grew too strong for them to bear. They thought that following after the idols of the surrounding culture would bring them peace, rest, and fulfillment. But what they experienced was oppression. And God allowed them to experience this oppression so that they might realize that sin is not comfortable. The agony of serving Cushan Rishathaim for eight years forces Israel to lighten their grip on idolatry. It's the beginning of their salvation in many ways. God hands his people over with a purpose in mind. He wants his people's suffering to arouse their souls and their hearts. God won't let his people stay comfortable in their sin. Cushan Rishathaim in many ways is a severe mercy, you might say. It was a hard lesson to learn where God inflicted misery in order to awaken a people that he loves. Rachel and I, we often have completely different strategies when it comes to parenting. And this normally upsets me at first until I realize that her methods are normally well thought out and far superior to mine. 
One of the ways we tend to differ when it comes to parenting our children is when they get themselves into a dangerous predicament. Rachel tends to let them learn a hard lesson while I want to protect them from hurting themselves. I remember this parenting difference on display a few years back. Our daughter Abigail decided that it was a good idea to climb on top of the kitchen counter using a rickety old chair from her room. And Rachel and I were both in the kitchen witnessing this together. And we saw Abby take the chair up to the edge of the counter. We watched her begin to climb on this rickety chair. We watched her lean over with one foot as she propped herself onto the counter. And everything inside of me as a parent wanted to jump out and protect Abby because I knew what was about to happen. She was about to fall. I looked over at Rachel and asked, aren't you going to do something? I asked that question a lot, actually. And she responded, no, she'll learn her lesson the hard way. Rachel knows that personal experience with pain was going to be the thing that kept Abby from trying to do the same thing again. And in many ways, pain was the best teacher to keep Abby out of trouble in the future, if you thought about it. And in much the same way, God sometimes lets us learn our lessons the hard way. Instead of jumping in and saving his people immediately, God allows them to experience the results of their poor decisions. For eight years, they're reminded of their tragic mistake. Eight years of oppression for choosing to worship the idols of the surrounding nations. In a sense, they got what they asked for, not what God wanted for them. In this oppression, it was the best teacher. God's people were learning the hard way that idols were not going to bring rest and fulfillment. I wonder where in your life this morning, God may be teaching you a hard lesson. Allowing you to experience, you might say, the oppression of your choices. Maybe it's the oppression of beauty. And that can be an oppressor in our lives. You never feel pretty enough, never feel beautiful enough. And you are a slave to food and exercise and image. Maybe it's the oppression of approval. You live and you die on what others think. You are a slave to people's opinions. Maybe it's the oppression of sex. And you're a slave to a dark, empty room with a computer screen. We thought we controlled our idols, but they end up controlling us. So how do we move out of this oppression and into the shalom that God wants to give us? Well, we see from our passage that the path to shalom is counterintuitive. We tend to think that we can realize fulfillment and peace and rest if we just get things in order. Have better quiet times. Maybe serve a little bit more. Read the right books. Schedule better. Promise to do better next time. We try to work our way out of the oppression that we find ourselves in. But we fail to see the tyranny of sin. I mean, we tend to think we can stop living for people's approval anytime we want, or we can give up the pursuit of sexual pleasure whenever we want, or stop loving comfort and money whenever we want, but we don't recognize sin's power. How it has its tentacles wrapped around our hearts. The benefits leave, and we're left in the grip of sin's oppression. And we find out that we can't stop whenever we want. But we see the counterintuitive pathway to shalom in this passage. It's not working more. It's crying out to God when our circumstances become unbearable. 
The only thing we contribute to our rescue is a cry of deep distress. We get on the path to shalom as we begin to experience our unbearable circumstances and cry out in deep distress to a God who loves us. Now we can turn and ask our last question. What role does God play in bringing shalom to our lives? Well, we see from our passage that God is one who hears the cries of his people. In fact, if you fast forward to Judges chapter 10, verse 16, you would see God's great compassion and pity towards his people. There it says that God could bear Israel's suffering no longer. He could bear his people's suffering no longer. And I wonder if you've ever thought of God like that before. God is one who is personally grieved by your suffering. In verse 9, we see that God responds to his people's cry by raising up a deliverer, one who saves them. And the word deliver in this passage is the Hebrew word Messiah. It makes that passage pop a little bit more, doesn't it? This judge is a Messiah or a Savior, and God raises up this Messiah for his people in order to rescue them out of the hands of their oppressor. In Judges 3, the Deliverer's name, the Messiah's name is Othniel. He's the one who God chose to raise up in order to rescue his people from this cruel oppressor. And we read in verse 10 that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel. In fact, throughout the passage, the focus really is on God working through this Messiah, working through Othniel. It was God himself who empowered Othniel to bring his people out of their oppression and slavery. God uses means, but at the end of the day, God's the true rescuer. Sending and empowering and gifting his deliverer to accomplish the task of rescue. And isn't it remarkable how stripped down this story of Othniel is? I mean, if you think about it, we get no dialogue here. There's no reported speech of any kind, no dramatic events, no heightened presentation. We'll see lots of details and character flaws in future judges. But there's absence in this first account. It's significant. Nothing is meant to distract us from the clear message of God's intervention through his chosen deliverer that he raises up. And we see at the end of this short account that Othniel prevailed against Cushan Rishathaim and the land had rest for 40 years until Othniel died. Because of Othniel's deliverance, rest, or shalom, it's restored to the land. The helpless cry of God's people leads to the deliverance of God and peace and security being restored by a Savior. We see in our passage that the search for shalom took God's people into oppression and pain. And in the midst of their pain, it was their helpless cry that roused the Lord's compassion. And in response to their cry for help, the Lord delivered his people from that oppression and restored shalom. And it would be a mistake for you and me sitting here in 2022 in San Antonio, Texas, not to read this story and see ourselves in it. Because just like the people in Judges chapter 3, we look to the wrong sources of shalom all the time. We make good things in our lives God things. And just like the people in Judges chapter 3, the more we give to those idols, the more they take from us until we cry out in distress. 
We get a template in Judges of how God works to rescue his people from their distress. He raises up a Messiah or a Savior to rescue his people from their oppression. We see that Othniel brought a temporary deliverance for these people. 40 years, that's pretty good. You'd probably take 40 years of peace and prosperity and rest. But then Othniel died. Something more was going to be needed for God's people to experience lasting deliverance and true shalom. A deliverer who would not die is what's needed. And that's the deliverer we find in Jesus. The true deliverer of God's people, the Messiah with a capital M. Othniel is a small taste of what God would ultimately do for his people in the person and work of Jesus. We read in Luke chapter 4 that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jesus as he came to restore shalom to the world. God works through a Savior to bring you and me shalom truly now and one day completely. We can experience now, we'll experience it one day fully. And Jesus promised shalom on the cross when he experienced loneliness so that we might get fellowship. Grief so that we might have joy. Confusion so that we might have confidence. He experienced emptiness so that we could experience fulfillment. He took God's wrath so that we might have God's peace. He took death so that we might have life. He took on hell itself so that you and I might experience shalom. Jesus gives us what we desperately want and need. And the question for us this morning is, will we look to Jesus for completeness, peace, contentment, will we look to him for shalom? Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you come to fulfill our heart's deepest longings and desires. We are thankful for the way that you are attuned to our cries of distress and for the way that you come in order to rescue us and lead us back into paths that lead to life, joy, contentment, wholeness, into paths that lead to shalom. Lord, we pray that as we follow closely with our deliverer, our great Messiah, Jesus, that you would give us bigger and stronger tastes of that shalom. Continue to encourage our hearts in the midst of this fallen world, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.